Good morning. Today's scripture from the Hebrew Bible is Habakkuk 1, 2 through 4, and 2, 2 through 4. How long, Yahweh, shall I cry out for help, and you do not listen? I shout to you violence, and you do not deliver. Why do you make me see iniquity and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Moreover, the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice emerges perverted. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablet, so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come, and it will not delay. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right within them, but the righteous live by their faith. Now, I'm sure all of us have read Habakkuk many times and probably don't need me to give any background information about that passage we just read, right? Well, just in case, I should let you know that Habakkuk comes directly after the book of Nahum in the part of the Hebrew Bible that we refer to sometimes as the book of the Twelve or the Minor Prophets. And scholars think that the two books were intentionally ordered this way because they're meant to be read against one another. Nahum prophesies that Judah's longtime enemy, Assyria, is going to be destroyed. And this means that Judah can celebrate because they will never be invaded again and the good life will start. Nahum's language um, says that the Assyria is collectively described as wicked, while Judah is collectively described as righteous. So the idea is that there is an entire group that's wicked, and if they're simply taken away or removed, then the righteous group will live happily ever after. But some scholars have pointed out that when we read Nahum against Habakkuk, Habakkuk shows Nahum's view to be naive and culturally chauvinistic. Historically, Assyria was destroyed, but that didn't produce the happy ending that Nahum envisioned. What happened is the destruction of Assyria simply created a power vacuum that Babylon came along, filled the hole, and they did destroy Judah. They did invade them, destroy them, and carry them away into captivity. The author of Habakkuk may have been trying to address the disparity between Nahum's ideology and the reality of history by telling a more complex story where both the Judeans and the Babylonians who attack them can be described as wicked. It's been noted that unlike classical prophecy, Habakkuk no longer announces judgment against an entire nation, only those that he deems sinners, and particularly those who commit violence. In Habakkuk 1, 2 through 4, the prophet specifically cries out against violence that is caused by the injustice of Judean elite against other Judeans of lower standing. Then in verse 9, the prophet uses the same word for violence to describe how the Babylonians will act when they come to destroy Judah. Later in chapter 2, Habakkuk prophesies that because the Babylonians have used violence against other nations and against the earth itself, they will also be destroyed. It's likely not a coincidence that Habakkuk's oracle against Babylon uses flood imagery, 
because the word for violence that Habakkuk uses is the same one that Genesis 6 uses to describe the violence that corrupted the whole earth and required the equally violent destruction of the flood. So here lies the problem. We can see that historically, violence only brings more violence. But the real issue is that violence is not limited to physical acts. The Hebrew Bible uses the same word that we've been talking about in all these instances in Habakkuk and the flood to describe a false testimony against another person. When we say someone is wicked because we perceive them to be part of a group that is different than ours without knowing them as an individual, we are contributing to violence. Although Habakkuk moved on from a false ideology that says an entire nation is wicked or righteous, biblical scholar Amy Willis cautions that Habakkuk's language still creates a simplistic dualism between the wicked and the righteous, and it still depicts the liberation of one group at the expense of another. She says, that, she says readers should question Habakkuk's images of redemptive violence and ask how the prophet's vision of a liberating God could be re-envisioned in terms of restorative justice. Hundreds of years after Habakkuk, the poet Langston Hughes also laments the cycle of violence in his composition, Harlem. He says, What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags under a heavy load? Or does it explode? Hughes understands that violent cultural injustice of his own era can only lead to more violence. The question how long that Habakkuk asked is implicitly present in both the poem's spacing and Hughes' rhetorical question, does it explode? But one feature that makes these particular lines so powerful is that Hughes doesn't, he, he does not resort to classifying an entire group as wicked because of the violence that he faces. Instead, he addresses the problem, he speaks truth, and he refuses to give in to an us-versus-them narrative. My personal understanding of the us-versus-them narrative was transformed last summer when I went with a group from my school to the Middle East. And we went to a place called the Root Center just outside of Jerusalem. It's a co-op where Palestinians and Israelis work together on projects so that they can get to know each other as individuals and um, try to alleviate the problems in the society. So during our visit, we listened to Palestinians and Israelis tell specific stories about violence that had affected them personally and their communities. And sadly, they admitted that they didn't see hope for any kind of resolution in the future. But they said if there was going to be a resolution, the first step would be getting rid of an us-versus-them narrative. Because the only thing it can produce is seeing someone as the other and promoting more violence. At the beginning of Habakkuk 2, when God responds to the prophet with a vision, he says, the vision testifies to a time set in the future. In the Christian faith, we believe that time is now. God has broken into our world 
And through the death of Jesus, he's inaugurated a new age where we are equipped with the power of the Spirit to be agents that resist the corrupt political and religious systems of this passing age. The question is not will you be a Judean or a Babylonian, a Presbyterian or a Hindu, on the good side or the bad side, because they both bring violence. Human nature brings violence. The question is, will you be a child of God? Will you transcend the earthly us versus them narrative? In the book of Philippians, Paul tells us how to do this. First, he highlights that human beings often exalt themselves because of their perceived status. We think that some kind of accomplishment or lot in life or our job, something makes us have priority over other people. But Paul encourages Christians to be like-minded. And the similar mindset that he encourages us towards is the mind of Jesus, who did not consider being equal with God as something to be exploited, but instead he poured himself out. He gave up his right to control for the choice to serve. Jesus took the form of the other. Rather than imposing his form on humanity, he gave us the opportunity to be elevated to it. Essentially, the us versus them narrative stems from wanting to form the world and others into our own image. We often want our vision for a perfect society without concern to what happens to others in the process. Without care for, we don't care about our relationship with them, and that relationship is inherent, inherent because we are human beings sharing the same earth. In... <laughs> But God created humankind in his image, and the Hebrew text of Genesis 2.15 tells us that Adam was placed in the garden to serve. In Luke 22.27, Jesus says, For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus gave up his rightful place at the table. He refused to create a new society by trying to control it from the top down and impose his vision through any other means than placing others higher than himself and serving them. We will not get to a new future by implementing the same old dualistic view where everything is broken down into two groups and everyone who is perceived as being in the other group is demonized. Assyrian versus Judean, Israeli versus Palestinian, Republican versus Democrat, black versus white, us versus them. One of the biggest pitfalls of this narrative is that it leads to de-individualization. And de-individualization always leads to dehumanization. And history has shown us that dehumanization will always lead to violence. The only question is, how long? Don't get me wrong. I think that we do live in exciting times, that the long-standing injustices are being questioned, and the structures of privilege and discrimination are facing growing resistance, and many members of society are moving towards a vision that opposes the violence described by Habakkuk. What I'm proposing is that the methods we use to reach our ideals are just as important as how we reach them. It's important to name and address past wrongs so we can confront lingering practices and mindsets that still affect society. But in naming them, it's helpful to avoid any language that generalizes and villainizes a specific political party, 
race, ethnicity, gender, or religious belief. If we continue to use language that liberates one group at the expense of another, we haven't gained any new ground. In truth, injustice is part of unredeemed human nature, and it's unrealistic to think that any of us can accurately assess the guilt of a group without taking on the impossible task of distinguishing between all the individuals that comprise it. All human beings are guilty without Christ, and in Christ we aren't focused on which group is right or wrong because the us-versus-them narrative will only perpetuate the cycles of violence. Instead, it is up to us to be like Habakkuk and refine the traditions that we've inherited so that we can all move towards the peace and unity of God's vision for creation. Amen.